It's wonderful to see you today. It's an incredible uh, blessing and privilege to uh, be invited by Pastor Dave to share the word with Oakhurst Church today. Um, I have to admit, I was pretty excited about coming to hang out with y'all. I had a chance to get to know Pastor Dave uh, in a very particular context when we traveled on a vision trip to Russia together several years ago, and uh, just really enjoyed. I didn't, I didn't know Pastor Dave well at that time, and I was just so very grateful to have those uh, days to interact, and I just became incredibly convinced of the fact that uh, he's not only a man who professes faith in Christ and professes to love the church that Jesus died to save, but his life and his words and his witness in his day-to-day life supports that 100%. And I know that you know that, but it was an incredible blessing to me to, to see that and experience that. And uh, since then, we've enjoyed a very special camaraderie as partners in the gospel, as we uh, share together in the Pillar Network, as you heard, and as we labor together and pray together and serve together to plant churches uh, all across North America and around the world. So, Pastor Dave, elders uh, and church, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I must admit that uh, when I got to our hotel yesterday afternoon, the place was completely packed. I was thankful we could even have a room. The, the hotel next door was completely packed. I heard the folks behind the desk talking about the fact that there weren't rooms anywhere to be had, and I thought, wow, Oakhurst has really done an amazing job at getting out the fact that I'm going to be here today. Um, it's incredible, and I just I cannot wait to see what tomorrow is going to be like. Of course, later that evening, uh, yesterday evening, you might imagine both my disappointment and uh, my sense of humility when I discovered that actually Billy Joel played at the stadium last night, and they were actually all there to see Billy Joel, not Bill Curtis. But I want to tell you this, I am really glad to see you. And I'm really glad to be with you today and to have the privilege uh, to worship alongside of you as we celebrate the Lord Jesus. I do bring uh, greetings to you from Cornerstone Baptist Church and from our elders and from our folks, uh, we bring a word of greeting to you as well today. Uh, we actually have one of our pillar staff guys, Reverend Nate Aiken, is preaching at my church today. So we're actually kind of modeling as well how it is that we can cooperate together as churches. And sometimes it's in ministering for one another's congregations that we share our unity in the gospel. So uh, we're modeling that as well. I do want to give you a personal invitation. Uh, if you ever go to Myrtle Beach, and you go down and cross over on I-20 and then go through Florence, go to the beach. That may be how you go from here. I don't know. If it is, you drive right by our church. So if you're traveling down on a Sunday morning or home on a Sunday morning, uh, we meet at 9 and 1030, and you have my personal invitation to join us. And if you do, be sure to come up and uh, share with me that you're visiting from Oakers. Uh, but again, it's a great joy to be with you today. I want to just begin by leading us in prayer as we uh, prepare to study the Word. Father in heaven, it is with great joy that we have gathered together to make much of you, uh, to lift high your Son, uh, to rejoice in the Spirit, 
as we just enjoy the fellowship of the saints uh, gathered together to worship you. And I'm so very thankful, Father, for the privilege to uh, spend some time with this wonderful fellowship of believers. I'm so grateful for the work that you've been doing here through the years and uh, for all that you have in store for them. God, I'm grateful for the impact that they're having in this part of their city. And Father, I continue to pray that together with one mind, uh, in, in one spirit, that they would press on into the vision and future that you have for them. That they would never grow weary in well-doing, but would always live in the reality of the promise. That in due season we reap if we do not give up. And so I continue to pray that for them uh, as they serve you here in the gospel. And now, Father, we turn our attention to our time to reflect on your word together. And I pray, Father, that you would really help us to set aside the things that really kind of easily distract us and that we would really, Father, have the capacity to think well and deeply about your word with the desire, Father, to hear from you and to grow Uh, to see change happen in our inner man today because we have met with you. And Father, I pray that the words that we just sang together are true for us, that you and you only are first in our hearts. Father, that's easy to sing. That's incredibly difficult to live. And even today, you may desire to point out in each of us some part of our life where you're not first, and may we, when we're confronted by the work of your Spirit, uh, not run from that truth, Father, but embrace it together, uh, that we might leave this place more closely aligned with, with your purpose and desire for us. So, Father, as we open your word together now, we simply ask that you'd speak to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. That will be our text for today. I love the books of 1 and 2 Peter. I taught through them a couple of years ago, and they are two of my favorite books in the Bible. I think they're just filled with such deep theology, but they're also filled with very practical like insight and application for our spiritual lives. These books convict me when I read them. Um, But I find that conviction to be necessary and helpful, and I hope that you do as well. I'll be teaching from the ESV today. Um, If you're using an electronic version of the Scripture, I certainly hope that you'll uh, touch your settings there and turn off your notifications. It's amazing how the prince of the power of the air can derail you at the very moment God the Holy Spirit wants to encounter you. And so uh, if if you wouldn't mind doing that, that that would be wonderful. Today we're going to be thinking about this theme, proclaiming God's excellence in an age of disbelief. Proclaiming God's excellence in an age of unbelief. The the place where we find ourselves as those who live in Western culture, and certainly within uh, the United States, and certainly even within uh, the southern part of the U.S., which has always historically been referred to as the Bible Belt of America, we're finding that there are two worldviews that are constantly clashing against one another. 
The first would be the worldview that I would assume most of us would affirm. That is a theistic worldview. It is a worldview that acknowledges and accepts that there is transcendence, that there is something, and we would say someone, outside of the natural world who created this world and who has spoken into this world to those He has created. Those who affirm this view would affirm that God exists, that He has created men and women in His own image, and that He has revealed Himself to us through creation by sending His Son and by providing for us the written Word of God. We would also affirm that this God who made us wants to know us and have a forever relationship with us despite the fact that we are separated from Him by our sin. And we would believe that those who place their faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins can be made new in Christ and have the promise of eternal life with Him. So this theistic worldview fundamentally acknowledges there is a God and each person who lives in this world is accountable to Him. Now, in contradiction to that and pushing back against that, and in many ways feeling as if it is winning the day, is a worldview that we would simply describe as a secular worldview. This view essentially denies the existence of the transcendent and instead affirms a view of the world where everything is deemed to be imminent. That is to say, nature exists, and as a result, man is accountable to no one. Woman is accountable to no one except himself or herself. Now, these two worldviews which continue to clash revolve around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we use in the title that we are called to be a people who proclaim God's excellence in an age of disbelief, the disbelief that we're referencing is that, certainly in the culture in which we live, that there is a God who exists, that He has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, and that knowing Christ is the single most important Thing in a person's life. And these, these worldviews now are constantly clashing, and we encounter it everywhere that we go. Now, it's important for us to understand, though, at the same time, that in every age in the history of the world, there have been people who have exercised disbelief in God, and who have even heard the good news of how to be reconciled to God and said, no thanks, I'm not interested in that approach. Our Lord Jesus, the best, most perfect teacher who ever lived, shared faith with people who rejected the message that he offered. And I, So if people can actually practice disbelief in the presence of the living Son of God, we shouldn't be shocked that they can exercise disbelief when they encounter us and our witness as well. But it's important for us to understand that this is not a new phenomenon. In every century, the church has faced unique ways in which culture has pushed back against the claims of Christ, and ours is no different. Now, as Peter is addressing first century believers, 
we're going to recognize some things that sound very familiar to us because in many ways they actually reflect the kind of culture that we live in today. And he begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 with these words. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I loved hearing your pastor pray for protection against those things in his pastor's prayer today because these are avenues that the enemy can use to disrupt the unity of a local church. And of course, when unity is disrupted, we, we kind of grind to a stop when it comes to fulfilling the mission. So Peter says, look, don't fall into that trap. Instead, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. As he now we'll continue through the rest of our text for today. He's going to give us kind of a picture of what it means to be growing up. We would say maturing in our spiritual faith. He's talking about growing to be a man of God or a woman of God. What does that look like? What is that grounded upon? And how does that have like a very visible application in the way that we live out our life? So we continue in verse 3. We should do this if indeed we have tasted that the Lord is good, if we are genuinely born-again followers of Jesus. Now verse 4. As you come to Him, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So here's this description of Christ. We'll see this reference to Christ as a stone, as the cornerstone in just a moment. But he says, now, as you have come to him, as you are growing up into the salvation that you have received through faith in Jesus, you yourselves, so now comes the, the application to his readers, now through the Holy Spirit comes the application of this text specifically to you and specifically to me. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and I want you to notice this next phrase in, in a very special way, because we'll return to it in a few moments, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As his followers, we are these living stones now. We're being built into a spiritual house. We are the church. We are blocks as members within the church of Christ. We are being built up together to be a dwelling place for God. And our task is to offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God. This, of course, brings to mind Romans 12.1. This is your spiritual act of worship, right? As we are growing in our relationship with Christ. Now, verse 6, it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. This is Jesus, who is the foundation of the church. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So those of us who are in Christ have the promise that because we are built upon the Lord Jesus, the cornerstone, we ourselves have been recipients of the truth of who God is, how to know him, and we are the recipients of the benefits that come from knowing Christ. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, that verse should sound familiar, shouldn't it? Because we just heard it read from Psalm 118 a few moments ago. And here it is being cited by Peter to to reinforce that Jesus is the cornerstone. And verse 8, this cornerstone is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Peter begins by addressing these followers of Christ who are believers in Jesus. But then he introduces another category of people who are not believers in Jesus. They would be in the category of those who would say uh, are still living in an age of disbelief. So how does Peter describe them? Well, he, he says to them... Jesus, the cornerstone, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The wicked always stumble over Christ, uh, uh, judging his, his call and his requirements to be too difficult, to be too uh, constraining, to be something that sounds as if it would just take all of the joy and fun out of life, right? So they stumble over the gospel because it makes demands upon them to surrender their will to the will of Christ. But skeptics also stumble over Christ, right? They see in Jesus a rock of offense. They're offended by the message of the gospel. They're offended by the cross. They're offended by the very notion that their lives are such that they cannot of their own merit earn the favor of God and participation in heaven with Him. Now, he describes their stumbling, though, at the end of verse 8 in a very interesting way. He says they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. They disobey the Word. The Word of God written, which reveals who God is, reveals who we are, it reveals what our desperate situation is as sinners separated from God, it reveals God's beautiful remedy for our problem, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it demonstrates that through faith in Christ, we can be rightly related to God and experience life the way God intended for it to be, and yet, there are those who will say, I do not believe the word. I will not believe. And there remains therefore no longer a sacrifice for sins when you set aside the one way that God has designed to reconcile you to himself. Now my assumption is that many of you who are here, maybe all of you who are here, have heard that good news, responded in faith to Jesus, and have experienced God's forgiveness. But listen, if you're here today and you've been that skeptic, or you've just been that person who says in rebellion, I will not align myself with God and His plan for my life. First of all, let me say I'm really glad you're here. God's really glad you're here. And God loves you and He continues to extend to you the offer of forgiveness if you will come to Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And if you're interested in more information about that, I know Pastor Dave would love for you to speak to him before you leave today. He'll set up a time to talk with you about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. He's not going to twist your arm up behind your back. Oakhurst and Cornerstone are not in the business of forcing people into decisions as if we even could. But we sure do love to talk with folks about how Jesus can change their life. And if that's you, and I really hope you'll seek out Pastor Dave 
and set up a time to talk to him before you leave. So there is this very intentional disobedience to the word that defines those who disbelieve. Now the next phrase has been confusing to some over the years where it says, as they were destined to do, some might read that and believe God is somehow the origin of sin and he's somehow responsible for the sin of sinners. We understand from the word of God that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, God says he never tempts anyone to sin. That's, that's what Satan is about in the world culture is creating an environment where your sinful tendencies and inclinations bump up into the sinful culture that he's created and, and you're tempted to sin. So God is at the source of this, but, but make it be very sure that you understand that those who reject the word do so solely out of an ongoing desire to indulge their own sinful pursuits of pleasure, finding enjoyment in their sin, and celebrating with those who are engaged in the same types of things, and that's very clearly revealed to us, of course, in Romans chapter 1. So Peter begins by reminding us who the cornerstone is. It is Jesus. We are built upon him, and we're going to see in just a moment, he's going to expand that description of us as a holy priesthood. And there are those among whom we move and live who are actively in disbelief, rejecting the word of God and the way of God. Now we get to verse 9, and verses 9 to 12 will be our primary focal point in the remaining moments. I want you to note those first two words, but you. Okay, so verse 8 describes the person who's living in disbelief. Now he comes back to us again, very pointed, but you. So there's a distinction now, a difference that's going to be seen between those who disbelieve the word and have rejected Christ, those who believe the word and have accepted Christ. There is a difference. But what is that difference? Notice he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, if you're taking notes, it's here that I would encourage you to jot down my first principle from this text. And it's that God has chosen you to be a proclaimer of his excellence. But you, okay, you are not a person of disbelief. You are a person of faith. God himself has chosen you to be rightly related to him. And he has a very intentional purpose for your life. And it is to proclaim his excellence. Now what we have, the beginning of verse 9 is this cascading description of the saints. And many of us have read this so often that we might just rush through these descriptions, like, okay, it's all synonymous, let's get on to the main idea. But really, these descriptions are the main idea. <laughs> because this is the, the understanding of life that positions us to be a proclaimer of God's excellence. He says, first, you're a chosen race. Here, I would encourage you to jot down the phrase, I am a participant in the gospel. 
I'm a participant. I have been chosen by God to be rightly reconciled to him through faith in Christ. I am now a part of the kingdom of God. I am a member of the family of God. I am a totally different person because I've met Jesus. I have a new kingdom of which I'm a resident. And I have a new king and I have new purpose and expectation for my life because of my relationship with Christ. We are participants in the gospel because God chose us to repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Now, because of the gospel, because of this uh, reconciling work of God through Christ into our life, I now am a royal priesthood. I am a believer priest. This speaks to my purpose as someone who is rightly related to God. Priests were those in Israel who were responsible for making offerings to God on behalf of others. They led the people in praise. They led the people through the sacrificial system. This is what priests did, but it was only the Levites. But in the kingdom of God, each of us is a believer priest. And because of that, we're now capable, as we saw in verse 5, remember that phrase that I encouraged you to make note of, to offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God. This is what we do. We offer ourselves first, but then we're going to see in a moment, we offer praise to God in the sight of a disbelieving world because priests make much of God. And that's what we're each called to do. Not only are we a chosen race and a royal priesthood, but we are a holy nation. You might jot down the, the word pursuit here. What is the pursuit that God has called us to? It is the pursuit to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is what Paul mentions in Romans 8, verse 29. But I want you to look back in 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment and notice how it is that and why it is that God calls us to be a holy nation. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't go back to living the way you did when you lived in disbelief. Don't, don't return there. Why? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's a high bar, isn't it? That's a high bar. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are a holy nation. Now, holiness is something that runs throughout all the Word of God, and we shouldn't be surprised to know that the Bible describes God as perfect and sinly and righteous and holy. <laughs> like, He's perfect. And yet He has saved us and is transforming us to be like Christ. And he wants his character to become our character. And that's really how I define the word holy. It is aligning our character with the character of God. Aligning our character with the character of God. That's what it means to be holy. And I will suggest, based on what Peter has to say in just a few moments, that really personal purity is a, if not the defining external characteristic of a Christ follower when you live in an age of disbelief. 
holiness, personal purity. Now, all of this, of course, then concludes with this final description. He says, you're a chosen royce, a race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. This speaks to our position, that we belong to Christ. When you placed your faith in Jesus and received him as your Savior and your Lord, you became his. You became his. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 for just a moment. The text says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, perfect, holy, sinless. He died to atone for your sin. And he bought you with that price. And now the scripture will say that it's, it's no longer us, it is him in us that is allowing us to fulfill the purpose for which God saved us. Now, that purpose is what he references then as he ends verse 9. You're all these things that, okay, so this is a key word in the Greek, the so that understanding, the in order that, the reason why. Why has he done all of these things for us in Christ? So that, notice the rest of verse 9, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The whole reason for that is that we might be a people who live in such a way that we declare with all that we are the greatness of God and the beauty of salvation that is made available through Christ. So let's look at those phrases quickly together. That you may proclaim. In the Greek, this phrase means to broadcast something via praise. And I, I always wrestle to say, well, how, does that mean like I, I need to sing when I witness to people? Do I need to like put it into verse? Do I have to like, is this music? How is this even possible? But actually, we see it lived out around us every day, all the time, especially if you enjoy sporting events, as I do. I enjoy athletic competition and certainly enjoy watching teams compete. And if you've ever been a part of a crowd in a game where the team you rooted for won in the last second, have, you ever, have any of you ever experienced that? Let me see your hands. Anybody ever been there? The game-winning shot, the walk-off home run, whatever it is. Have you ever noticed what the crowd does? What do they do? They jump. Their hands go up and they yell at the top of their lungs for as long as they feel like doing it. It just goes on and on. What are they doing? They are proclaiming. They are broadcasting. They're communicating something via praise. Twice, Lyle and I have been in cities when teams won championships. Once we're in um, San Antonio and the Spurs won the final game of the NBA championship. And we were on like the 18th floor of this hotel downtown, and all night, I'm not kidding, all night, they drove in circles around the downtown thing, blaring the horns, screaming, playing music, just loud. It was like the whole city 
was lifting its voice, right, broadcasting via praise how thankful they were that the Spurs won. In 2014, we were visiting friends in Germany. We were in Berlin on the night that Germany won the World Cup on a goal in added time. I don't know if y'all follow soccer or not, but I kind of do. Okay, now, now a whole nation. Now imagine a whole nation outside doing this because their team just won the World Cup. We've never seen anything like it, have we? Oh, it was, it was incredible. This is what Peter is speaking about. He's saying, you know what? Your life is designed to be this type of, of praise-producing activity that is focused and not limited to just the temporary things of a team championship or game-winning shot or a World Cup. Like, no, I am proclaiming the greatness of the one who worked in my life in such a way that I am now rightly reconciled to God in all of these ways. That you may proclaim his excellency. This speaks to God's character, his virtues, his power, his glory. Specifically, it speaks to his moral excellence. What is it that makes God great? I grew up praying this little prayer. God is great. How about you say it with me? God is good. Let us thank him for our food by his hands. Yes, okay. So many of you, like me, grew up praying that prayer. If somebody had asked me, so what makes God great? I'd been like, uh, he gave me dinner. <laughs> yeah, okay, yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> but let's go a little past that. All right, declaring the greatness of God is now seen in the next phrase. What greatness am I declaring? What excellent thing it is that he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the great thing. Like, I have been forgiven. I don't, I don't stumble in the darkness of disbelief anymore. I see my place in the world perfectly and clearly. I know who made me. I know who I am. I know how I've been reconciled to him. I know his purpose and plan for me. I'm a brand new person. And he goes on to say in verse 10, look, remember, you used to not be a people, but now you are. What people have chosen, raised a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belongs to God. You used to not be that, now you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You've not been given what you deserve. Instead, God in his grace has extended forgiveness to you. He has punished Christ so that he can pardon you. And this is the excellent message. This is it. This is what God calls us to do. It reminds me of a, a wonderful song that I love by Chris McClarney called Hallelujah for the Cross. And there's this, a phrase in that song that says, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I was a prisoner. Now not. Can I get a hallelujah in here today? Somebody say hallelujah. I was a prisoner and now not. Right, this is it. With your blood you bought my freedom. Hallelujah for the cross. This is how we proclaim the excellencies of him. Because he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen us to be the people who proclaim 
His excellence in spite of all of the disbelief that we encounter around us. But quickly, let me give you my final principle. God has also chosen you to pursue His excellence, to pursue it, to pursue it. So I proclaim it in the gospel of Jesus, but I also pursue His excellencies because I'm to be conformed to the image of Christ. Right? This is what God is doing to me. That requires a pursuit. I am intentional about growing in this way in my life. So quickly, how do I do that? Verse 11 and 12. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, the better translation, I think, is when as evildoers they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on your day of, of visitation. Now, he's reminding them, you're part of a new kingdom now. That, that secular world of disbelief is not, you don't belong to that anymore. And as soon as you became a follower of Christ and a participant in the kingdom of God, like you're now, you're the stranger in the world now. Don't be shocked when people think you're strange for following Jesus. You're the stranger. Like he says, you're a sojourner. You're a stranger. You're an exile. So what are we to do in pursuing the, the holy excellencies of God in order that our witness would have validation? Notice what he says. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now the word passion in the Bible uh, can sometimes be used in a positive way and sometimes a negative way. When it's used in a positive way, it's often translated meekness, which is power under control. So Jesus is described as being meek, right? But he has all the power of the universe in his disposal, but it's under control, right? He's God. Now, when passion runs amok, when passion's out of control, the Bible generally translates that as lust. That's that's desire that's out of control. And we can lust after many things. Here it appears that Peter is admonishing the church to push back against the sexual sin and the ungodly lifestyles of those who live in disbelief so that there's a very clear distinction in appearance between those who profess the excellencies of Christ and those who, who wander in the darkness of disbelief. We could look at a number of texts. For the sake of time, we won't. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 lists sins of the flesh. And what's interesting is whenever you find one of his lists, they all begin with admonitions against sexual sin. It's always at the top of the list. Now remember, most of the Gentiles who came to Christ during this time all came out of pagan idolatry and pagan idol worship at the temples of the Romans always included sexual immorality as a component of the worship. So they, they're delivered from that, but they have that baggage and they have that history and they have that temptation and they see people continuing to live in that kind of a, a lifestyle. And there was, there was this tension within them, right, that their passions were tempted to run amok, that waged war against them. Remember, they'd put on the new man, but Paul will say in Romans 7, he's still dragging the old man around by his ankle, right? It's just this body of death that 
uh, we have with us until we're delivered into the presence of God. And so it seems very clear to me that Peter has in mind then this, this abstaining from the passions of the flesh, what he referenced in chapter 1 to be the passions of your former ignorance, the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, right? To set that aside so that you don't live your life like Lot who vexed his righteous soul daily in the wickedness of Sodom, but instead are positioned in such a way that our conduct among the Gentiles is honorable. Now, moral purity, as we encounter it in the Word of God, is always rooted in God's holy character. It has always been a means of distinction for the people of God from the world. It was true for Israel with their purity laws. It's true for the church with its admonitions to be a holy nation uh, who are holy because our God is holy. Now, the secular prophets of our day want to tell us that gender is fluid and sexuality should be free from constraint and morality is self-determined. You say, yeah, I can't believe that's suddenly in our world. Listen, it's not suddenly in our world. Do you know the Old Testament law of Moses contains commands against every one of the things I just said? 1400 B.C. Okay, so sin is sin, and it manifests itself consistently amongst those who disbelieve. But the challenge is for those of us who are in Christ that we say our lives must be different and must look different. For those who live in the darkness of disbelief, who live with this kind of secular vision that moral is, morality is self-determined and I should be free to live however I choose, in many ways, the ecstasy of self-indulgent sex in any of its forms really is the highest form of enjoyment that a sinner can achieve. Notice I said enjoyment, I didn't say joy. Sin can produce enjoyment, but it cannot give joy. Those of us who are in Christ, though, God says, wait, I've given you something better, something more that enables you to be different. See, when people worship God rather than themselves, the ecstasy of soul satisfaction that flows from experiencing God's grace in all areas of our lives, that is what produces joy and contentment that only God can supply. And so we are admonished, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. This is just speaking as Gentiles, using it as a, the primary forum, right, where disbelief would have been most on display. Keep your conduct honorable. Reflect God's excellence. Right? Live like God. So that they may see your good deeds. And glorify God. Now what's very interesting in this statement is that if you look at chapter 4 of 1 Peter 1, you get the reason why there could be frustration and anger from the secular realm of disbelief against the purity and holiness that a follower of Jesus pursues. He says in verse 2, no longer live your time in the flesh for human passion. Here's the reference again, but for the will of God. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Like We should never be surprised that as we seek to to both... um, speak the excellency of Christ and live the excellency of Christ that those who live differently are angered by that or frustrated or reject us or push us aside and yet that is occurring by virtue of their disbelief and ultimately provides not only a distinction but a way for them to see modeled for them the difference that Christ can make and the ultimate goal of that is we desire that they see our good deeds and not glorify us, but glorify God. So as we proclaim God's excellence through the gospel with our lips, it's critically important that we embrace a lifestyle of holiness in our conduct that says to the world, my life is different because of the excellencies of He who called me out of darkness into His glorious light. May we as followers of Jesus and our pursuit of Christ lead to the joyful proclamation of God's excellence in the world. And as we live, may we be conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the truth and the teaching of your word. What a joy to be reminded of all that you have given to us in Christ. What a privilege to be chosen by you to be a part of the kingdom, to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation, to be a people of your possession, to be those who proclaim the excellencies of Christ through the gospel and who pursue that by living lives of holy obedience to you. Now, Father, in the dark days in which we live, we find we may be confronted with a temptation to abandon holiness because it's so prevalent in the culture around us. And we're just praying, God, that that wherever each of us may be personally in this moment in our pursuit of Christ, that, Father, if in any way we are being drawn towards things that, that don't promote your excellency, God, through your Spirit, convict us, challenge us on this day. May we confess that, and may we live with a fresh desire to pursue you with all that we are as we make your excellencies known in the world. And we pray this together in Jesus' name.